bit worried about that? Didn't want you to get so wrapped up in the moment that you were unaware of the four candles right there at your elbow. Uh, so far this Advent, uh, we have looked on successive Sundays at, uh, at the different themes of Advent. The first Sunday we talked about the promise of hope uh, in the midst of what looks like hopelessness. Um, we've talked about the fact that that hope is grounded in God's love. But the reason uh, that God saves the world, the reason that God sent His Son into the world was because He loves. And that ought to resort uh, to result in our joy, which is what we looked at last week. It should result in joy, uh, which is hard fought for, uh, but a necessary response all the same. Which brings us now to the final word, the last word of Advent. And that word is peace. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, uh, and maybe you've heard it before, is shalom. And what that word means is it's so much more than just a lack of fighting. So much more than the ceasing of war, though that's part of it. Shalom, this, this word shalom captures really, it's, it's really what we want out of life, right? Uh, a lack of trouble, contentment, wholeness, health, completeness. So really, if you were to idealize your perfect life, shalom would probably define it. Peace. Peace is what you want. Whether you're the angry father who is worn out by his work and when he gets home and his kids drive him to his wit's end and he just says, I want peace. Or you're the, or you're the single mom, overworked, overwhelmed, not getting a whole lot of help, and the help that you do get is not all that good. You want peace. Or if you're the widow, and your life is a little quiet, a little too quiet, and you don't have much to fill your time and your hands, and so you, your heart churns over every small slight, and your life is full of bitterness and malice, you want peace. Or whether you're the parent who can't figure out why their teenage daughter is doing what exactly it is that she's doing, and you're the teenage daughter who can't figure out why her parents won't leave her be, you want peace. What you want is shalom. And it is the one thing, it seems to be the one thing that we cannot have this side of heaven and so we're going to talk about how Jesus brings peace. And to do that, we're going to go to the book of Micah, Micah chapter 5. We looked at Micah earlier in the year when we did a series on the minor prophets, these small books at the back of the Old Testament that don't get a whole lot of play, a whole lot of press. Uh, and within Micah, there is probably one of the most familiar prophecies about Jesus, um, in, uh, in all of the Bible, one of the prophecies about Jesus' birth that, that most of us, probably all of us, may be familiar with. So, and it comes from Micah 5. So if you would, turn with me there, page 778, if you are using uh, the Red Pew Bible. <clears throat> and let's give attention to God's Word. Just to give you some context, Micah, like all of the prophets around him, uh, prophesied doom for 
God's people. Uh, God's people had sinned, they had rebelled, and so they had brought exile on themselves. And that's the, what the prophet's job was to go before the people and say, you are the cause of your problems. And they, would, they had a, a dual message, a twin message, one of judgment in the near term and then hope in the far term. And you'll see that as we read Micah 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he will be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, give light to your word that we would understand, that we could understand what was spoken and then written so many thousands of years ago, what is given for our benefit, so that we would know peace in our lifetime. Would you bless the reading and now the preaching of your holy word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's do this. Um, Because it's an Old Testament book and because it's not one we spend a whole lot of time on, let's focus first on what this meant for them. What did, when Micah said this to the Israelites in his day, what did it mean, peace for them? And then we're going to look and see what that means for us and how Jesus answers uh, how Jesus answers this call for peace, how Jesus is our peace. Uh, you can see that the situation is bleak in Jerusalem. Micah says, now muster your troops. Right now there's enemies at the gates. Right now the city is under siege, so muster the troops. But it's going to be a losing battle. The enemy is already at the gates. And so the fighting will be fruitless because what's going to happen, what they see, is that the judge of Israel, the ruler of Israel, is on his knees before the enemy general being struck on the cheek. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. It's humiliating. It's degrading to be conquered, to be beaten And Micah says, this is what's happening now. This is your current reality. And so you can imagine then that the cry for them is, how long? How long will we be defeated? How long will we be humiliated? Because when you're defeated, when your enemies are winning, the question that you naturally ask is, is does God even care? Is God absent 
And we know from the other prophets and from the history that this is exactly the question that was asked. Where is our God? How long, O Lord, will you let this go on? Am I wrong to believe? Am I a fool to trust his word? Is God there? Is he sleeping? Does he care? That's the present reality. But it's not the only reality. Micah says, but... But a new day is coming. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, a, a word, either a, another word for Bethlehem or a reference to the region that Bethlehem was in. You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. This, this little insignificant place. Uh, if David had not been from there, it wouldn't have even registered on the map. Bethlehem, insignificant unimportant from a very insignificant place will come a very significant ruler. From you shall come forth for me. This ruler will be for me. Unlike the current king, unlike the failures of the past, he won't be for himself. He won't be against me. He will be for me. He will carry out my purposes. He will do my will. He will be a ruler for me. A ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so even though this ruler will come in the future, his origins exist somewhere in the past. He is from of old. He is from ancient days, literally from everlasting days. We're talking about more than a mere man here. Somebody who comes from eternity past. From ancient days, from of old. He will stand, unlike the judge who is kneeling in defeat, being struck on the face. He will stand and shepherd his flock. This king will be a shepherd, not not an uncommon image for kings and Ancient times, he will be a shepherd. He will take care of the flock, unlike the shepherds that Israel has now that are shirking their duties and have cost themselves and their people much. He's not kneeling, he's standing, he's a shepherd, and he gets his strength to stand from God. He will stand for God and for his majesty. And what will be the result? They will dwell secure. These people who are harassed, these people who feel lost, these people who are defeated, they will dwell secure. They will have a rest. For he will be great to the ends of the earth. So his rule is not just for Israel. His rule is not just local. He's just not a local governor. His rule is worldwide. This king, this coming shepherd king, His peace will actually cover the whole world. He'll bring the one thing that we've been talking about the most since the 20th century, world peace. From the ends of the earth, he will be great. And when will it happen? When will he be their peace? Verse 3, after the people have been given up for a time. There's a time of waiting. Until she who is in labor has given birth. That's probably not, at least initially on this, a a reference to Mary. But it's a reference to the suffering 
the hard suffering of Jerusalem. Uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that in Romans 8, Paul uses the labor, uh, the labor imagery to talk about suffering. And so Micah's doing the same thing here. The people will suffer. They will suffer and labor for a long time until birth, until the shepherd king comes. And when he comes, he will bring all of his people home. He will gather his brothers back to the land. He will restore a right relationship with God. That's the promise. That's what peace meant for them. So let's take all of that together. Let's take the whole thing that Micah says. This guy is going to be a king, a shepherd from Bethlehem. Who would that remind them of? David. And we find in 2 Samuel that David received a promise from God. God promised David that one of his sons would sit on his throne forever. And so Micah is saying that God has not forgotten his promise. David's greater son will come. This shepherd from Bethlehem will come, and he will be a great king. And even though he will come after David, he actually comes before David. He's ancient. He's old. So what we have is an ancient shepherd king who will come to sit on David's throne. And when he does, he will bring peace. Now, for them, right there at that moment, that meant earthly, political peace. And Micah even says in Micah 4 that their weapons of war would be turned into farm tools, that nation would not war against nation. In fact, when the Messiah comes, they won't learn war anymore. There will be no need for war because all of the strife is over. You won't have to learn how to shoot a gun Or fire a missile when the king comes. But there's a deeper peace. There's a deeper peace that this king brings. He'll bring shalom, wholeness, rest, contentment. And we see that not so much in what Micah meant for them, what peace meant for them. But as we take Micah into the New Testament and we find what peace means for us. Over 500 years later, Micah would show up again when these wise men come from the Far East and they come to Jerusalem and they say they're there to find Jerusalem's Messiah. They're looking for the Jewish Messiah because they saw his star, Matthew 2. They come to Jerusalem, they come to the king and they say in Matthew 2 verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now the problem was they were asking the wrong guy. Don't ask the current king where the future king is going to come from. Right? Especially if that guy is Herod. Because he is not a man of peace. He is a man of bloodshed and war. And he wants to hold on to his throne. And even, even to the point of killing children to do it. And so Herod calls together all of the people who know, who read the Bible, the chief priests, the scribes, and he asks them, where is the Messiah? Where is the Christ to be born? They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people 
Israel. So Micah shows up again, this time pointing to this boy. Uh, We know, if you're familiar with the story, you know that those wise men leave Herod's palace. They go to Bethlehem, and they see the star, and they go into a house, and there they find the boy Jesus, probably around two years old, and they worship. And they give him gifts because they acknowledge that he, these, these foreigners from the Far East, probably, probably the inheritance, right, that they, they probably were studying scriptures that Daniel left behind in Babylon. And so they come and they worship this king of peace. But even before that, in Luke's gospel, after it in the New Testament, but before it chronologically, in Luke chapter 2, God makes a birth announcement, right? We sang about it. The first song that we sang, Angels We Have Heard on High. God sends his birth announcement, his, his Christmas card. And where does he send it? Not to the palace, not to the halls of power, but to a, a little hill outside of Bethlehem, to a group of shepherds who are working. He sends his angels. And what do they say? In Luke chapter 2, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Or again, as we sang in Latin, Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace among those whom he favors, among those with whom he is pleased. And so this boy... This baby born in Bethlehem comes to bring peace. We could say more. In John 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. The good shepherd who has a pretty interesting job. John 10, 11. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep, and he flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life. For the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Or as Micah would say, the brothers who must be brought back to Israel. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now Jesus is a man. And he he takes Micah's image, the image of the prophets, and he says, I am that good shepherd. I am the one who will gather the scattered flock of Israel. I will bring them home. And I will die in the process. 
because the good shepherd lays down his life. Rather than run away from the wolf who has come to destroy, he runs to him and he lays his life down to defeat him. Which brings us to the question, how do we have peace? If Jesus is the fulfillment of what Micah is talking about, if this baby born in a manger who grew up to become a man who died on the cross, if he is who he says he is, if he is this ancient shepherd king who comes to bring peace to the world, how does he do it? How does he do it, and how can we get it? How does he bring peace, and how can we get it? And for that, we go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 13. Paul Paul is talking to a church made up primarily of Gentiles, that would be non-Jewish people, but also uh, with some Jews there as well. And if you're not familiar with cultural conflict, Jews and Gentiles did not get along in Paul's day. It would be something akin to uh, the racial conflict in our own country. Um, And so it's that conflict, it's that hostility that Paul begins to address in Ephesians 2. He says in verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's me and you, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So let's work our way backwards. How do we come at peace? How do we achieve peace? Well, peace can only come when hostility is dead. Only when there is no more hostility will there be peace. And Paul mentions two kinds of hostility, two kinds of strife, enmity, hatred in this passage. First, there's a hostility between people. I'm a... um, I'm a, I'm a literature nerd. Um, I remember, I, I don't know, I still remember this from 10th grade English. Again, it's probably the only thing I remember from high school. Right? But there are, uh, I think there are four to five kinds of conflict that drive a narrative. And the first is man versus man. You want a good story, one of the, one of the conflicts that drive a good story is man versus man. And that conflict is as old as, uh, as, as, old as creation or at least not as old as creation, it's as old as the fall. That as long as there have been people outside of God's graciousness, there has been conflict. Conflict for Paul in this case is between Jews and Gentiles. If you went to the Jerusalem temple in that day, there would have been a wall there. If you were a Gentile, which I think 
just about everyone in this room is, if not everyone in this room, if you were a Gentile and you'd gone to the Jerusalem temple, you would not have been able to get very far. You would have been stuck in this outer court behind this huge wall. And on that wall, there was a sign that basically warned any non-Jew to not pass it. And if you passed it, you would be executed. That was the level of the hostility between Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day. You were kept from worshiping at the temple. But it's not really a Jew-Gentile issue. Hostility doesn't necessarily just, it's not just an ethnic issue. It's not an economic issue. It's not a, a political issue. You don't have to differ from someone in skin tone or tax bracket or even political party to hate them. Hostility runs deeper than all of those things that we usually think that divide us. Hostility is in our very nature. And the reason there is hostility between man and man is traced to the second kind of hostility that Paul mentions. And it's the hostility between man and God, which, by the way, is also conflict that drives the narrative. In Romans 8, 7, Paul says that the mind that is controlled by the flesh, that is against God's spirit, is at war with God because it does not seek to please God. It does not want to obey Him. And that conflict began in Genesis 3. As soon as Adam and Eve rebelled against God, as soon as they broke God's law, there was war. They rebelled. God has to, by His nature, respond in wrath. And so now there is enmity between, there is strife, there's hostility between God and man. But do you know the very next thing that happens where where that vertical hostility bubbles up? It bubbles up in Adam and Eve's relationship with each other. As soon as their vertical relationship with God is broken, as soon as there's hostility in the vertical, hostility horizontally flows out. Adam blames his wife, Eve. Eve blames the serpent. There is war. There is hostility. Adam and Eve's sons, one would kill the other, and it only gets worse from there. And so hostility, what the Bible says about conflict and about hostility is this, that if there is war between us, it is because there is war with God. There is no peace. There is hostility. The real source of our conflict is our rebellion against God. So how do we make peace? Is it, is it by putting the right people in power? Is it by making sure that everybody is economically equal? Those experiments have been tried. And then they have failed miserably, with great, awful consequences. So what is the answer? How do we find peace? Is it, is it whoever has the most power, as long as, we can, as long as we can accrue and solidify our military might, will there be peace in the world? Well, look at the countries who have the greatest military might. Do they have peace within their borders? Are their homes places of peace? No. So there must be something else. How do we answer this hostility problem? How, do, how is the hostility between God and between man killed? 
Paul tells us that Jesus reconciles us in verse 16. He reconciles us to God in one body through the cross. So Jesus dies to kill hostility. Instead, I mean, think, think about the irony of that. In order to kill the hostility, Jesus has to die. He doesn't do it with his might. He does it with his death. And when he does that, he brings near all those who were far off. He unites a divided humanity. The Jew and the Gentile, the rich, the poor, the white, the black, the slave, the free. He binds them together. Not by making us look the same nor even vote the same. He binds us together with his blood. He binds us together in himself. He, verse 14, he himself is our peace. He breaks down the dividing wall and he unites us. So, if you, if you are in Jesus... Here is, here is what you are. You are a new human race. We are not, we are not a divided human race over, over different countries and different nations. In Jesus, the, the church is a new human race brought together from all the languages, from all the cultures, from all the nations, made into one body, united in Jesus. And here's what that means. Conflict has no place in God's family. That's one, that's one very important application that we can draw from this. There is no place for hostility in the house of God. And the reason that it's here is because of sin. Because of continuing indwelling sin. The reason you hate your brother and you will not reconcile with your sister well, friend, there's no such thing as irreconcilable differences in the house of God. In Jesus, no difference is irreconcilable. They must be reconcilable. If we have been made one with God through the sacrifice of His Son, then we can certainly be made one with each other. That's why Paul writes what he writes. Kevin, you don't understand... You don't understand how hurt I am. You don't understand how much has been taken from me. I don't want to gloss over your pain because you're right. I am not, I, I, I am not in your shoes. But friend, it may be that you do not understand how much has been taken from you. You do not understand how much has been expunged from your criminal record. You do not understand how much debt has been canceled, how much debt you have been forgiven. If God no longer holds your sin against you, how can you hold your brother's sin against him? If you have been forgiven much, then you are called to forgive much. If you are in Christ and you have been reconciled with a holy God, 
You have been adopted into his family. You have been called son. You have been called daughter. When you deserve to be called rebel. When you deserve to be called curse. That has been changed for you. And if the God of peace loves you completely and calls you son and calls you daughter, then you must live in that. You must forgive. We must forgive one another. We must approach one another in humility and in honesty and in grace. There is no grudge left to hold. There is no crime And I don't want to gloss over deep pain. But as deep as the pain may be, God's grace runs deeper still. There is no grudge left to hold. And if you hold it, you injure yourself, you injure your family, and you injure the family of God. It's time to live in it. In Christ, you have been reconciled to God. Be reconciled to one another. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God's people, let's make peace with one another so that the message of the ultimate peacemaker will actually be believable. It's hard to preach peace when you don't live it. Ephesians 2:17 He came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. So the prince of peace was born in Bethlehem. And he becomes your peace when you own him as your sacrifice and when you follow him as your lord. Then he is your prince of peace. So if you want shalom, if you want rest, wholeness, tranquility, health, contentment, then run to the peacemaker, the ultimate peacemaker, Jesus. And if you find in your life that you do not have rest, contentment, wholeness, completeness, health, and you call yourself a believer then it's time to examine where you are not following Jesus, where you are failing to trust him as the peacemaker. If you have never known peace, if you've never known contentment, but if you want it, Jesus has it. Run to him. Trust in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Born thy people to deliver. Born to set your people free. From our sins and fears and cares, release us. You are our peace. Lord, I pray that you would bring it. It is fitting, Lord God, that the first word to your disciples after your resurrection where peace be to you. The work is done. 
You have laid down your life for the sheep. And in doing so, you have brought peace. Peace between God and man. And peace between man and man. For those of us who are your people, enable us to live in that peace. For those of us who are skeptical, Pray that you would reveal the lack of peace, the presence of hostility in relationships, in the mind, in life. Reveal hostility that we would long for and search for and find peace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas Eve.